All right, well, it is another time of study together in the book of Daniel. We're going to continue on. When we left off last time, we were talking about the fact that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to write a chapter in the Bible. And we proved, because of the translation difference, that he even knew that he saw the Son of God in that furnace. And Daniel wasn't there, but his three, his three confidants there, his friends. And the other thing, too, is you think about it, and there still is no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar was saved. That Nebuchadnezzar, when I read it. You think he was? Yes. Yeah? Okay. It's up for debate. It really is. Because so, God restored him again. He, you know, at the end, when I read, I know, you know, he repented. He restored him. Yeah, it could be. I think that the jury's out. You could say yes or no. But it is amazing that however it fell, God used him to such an extent that he gave him the ability to write that chapter, chapter yeah. four. That's where we kind of left off, and I think that's a remarkable thing. We were getting to the other dream he had. Now, the main dream is, of course, of that statue, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and that really is the key to the book of Daniel. I mean, it's, it's the Gentile world powers as they have the, the cadence throughout time. Again, not from Egypt, but from Babylon, which is what we're talking about here. And the modern day um, post-Nimrodian Babylonian culture and system and how it fared out over time and how it will fare out to the end where we are right now. So if you go to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 9, he's talking about this dream and this, remember, this is him speaking. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. And he says, I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. And no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpreted for me. So here's yet another dream, but this is different this time. So let's talk about that. In the first dream, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, he has shown the four major world Gentile governments which are to befall the earth down throughout history. Again, that statue that we, we know very well. To be smashed and wiped out by the rock, with a capital R, Jesus, who was cut out of a mountain and not of human hands because he didn't have a human father. He was sent by God himself, and he is Jesus Christ. But in this dream, we'll find not only Nebuchadnezzar's condition, but more importantly, a prophecy about the end days. This is the second dream that he's having here, so we're going to talk about it. So if we go to verse 10 of Daniel chapter 4, we can read what he's going to say about it. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 10. These are the visions I saw while laying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree. Now, this is a key factor here. Obviously, you've studied the book enough, or you've read the book enough to know that this is all about the concept of what a tree is. We're going to really get into that here. We have to, because this is key. A tree in the middle of the land. It wasn't off to the side. It was in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous, so it's a huge tree. It's the most overweening feature of this particular land in the dream. And the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all under it. The beasts of the field found shelter. Shelter, they lived there, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. They lived there as well. From it, Every creature was fed. So this is obviously not just a tree. It is a metaphor for a dominion. More than just a governmental system, I mean a nation and its government and all of the things that make it up, it is a great tree. And everybody lives in, and has sustenance in it because of the laws, because of the resources in the land, how they're administered and, and so forth and so on. And that's really what this is about. What I want to do here and what I did the first time I touched upon this was 
to really touch upon the, the Bible using the metaphor of a tree in different places because I think it just adds really a lot more thrust to how God uses this symbol in other places in Scripture. We can look at where else does God use the metaphor of trees. Well, we know that there is the tree of life, which is a big metaphor for a tree. There's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in other places in Scripture, there are trees that are symbols of other things. So we know the tree is a very important structure. And that's why it's no coincidence that it was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he gets to write about it in chapter 4. But as I said, the trees are typically a symbol of a, of a domain or a dominion. Have you ever heard of the allegory of Jatham's tree? Jatham's tree. After Gideon died, he looked for a tree to rule over all of the others. Now we're going to read about this in Judges. This is a little known passages in the book of Judges. And I remember years ago now when I first wrote this study, I had stumbled upon this in, in the materials I was studying about trees and their metaphor in the Bible. And I found it interesting. So we're going to look at it here. So go to Judges chapter 9, verse 7. We're going to read chapter 9, verse 7 to 9, 15. Here it is. Judges chapter 9, verse 7. When jo Did I say Jatham? It's Jotham. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gezerim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. So he's speaking sort of like a prophet here. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. Now remember, the context here is the book of Judges. This is now what he wants them to listen to. He says, One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. The trees. They said to the olive tree, be our king. When the olive tree was asked to be this king, it answered in verse 9, and it said, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over other trees? Next, the tree said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? So you see these products that are coming out of these trees, the olive oil, which is a major beneficial product from the olive tree. Now the fig tree, its major thing is the fruit and how it's used. But he says, should I give these up to be a king over you, the trees? You see how it's degrading here, decrementing? Then the trees said to the vine, I'll come and be our king. So, you know, since the olive tree and the fig tree refuse you, now you got to go, what else are you going to go to? The vine. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine? which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees. So the fruit of the grape, right? And the blessing that the grape is. They moved down to the thorn bush. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, well, come be our king. These people are desperate. Remember, this is the book of Judges. Let's think about the context here. Come and be our king. These are, they're desperate for a king. And in verse 15, the thorn bush said to the trees, this is great, it's like a joke. If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, think of this briefly. I'm going to read this a little bit more, not of, out of Judges, but just think of this. The major thrust of the thorn bush, it's a couple of things here. The thorn bush really doesn't produce any good fruit, but the thorn bush is part of the judgment that God gave men. Right When Adam sinned, he was going to get his food and his sustenance and have to go through the thorns and the thistles to get it. When Jesus Christ came as a man, as the second Adam, but he had to die, what was on his head? Not a crown of olives, 
thorn. So think of this. The other trees, this is just, again, looking into how Scripture is written to reveal certain things in crisis throughout all of this. But this is the thrust of this, just as a side note. The other trees who had some stature and had some good things about them, natural goodness to them, like the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, they said, well, should we give up those things that are a hallmark for, for the things God gave us to give to men and gods to please them or to be beneficial to them? The thorn bush doesn't really say that. The thorn bush says, if you really want me to be your king, it says he's not even refusing here. He's saying, then take refuge in my shade. The shade, the thorn bush doesn't really have much shade. The other trees could have shed that too. So Jesus is the overarching shade. But he had to come and die first. And then he became the shade. But if not, if you don't take refuge in in the thorn bush's shade, if we don't take refuge in the coming Messiah's shade here, if we don't believe in that, then let fire come out of the thorn bush. And by the way, what did Moses see? Let fire, this is judgment now. So if you want me to be your king, take shade in me. Obey me and listen and be submissive to me and I will be your king. This thorn bush answers very differently than the other trees. The other trees are basically saying, I'm not going to give you the best. You know, I have to give up all my goodness to be your king. What the thorn bush is saying is, you have to find your goodness in me under my shade, which is counterintuitive. You know, I might be able to find good shade in an olive tree or some other tree and, by the way, gain its fruit. You're not going to find much shade in a vine, but the vine didn't say that. My point is, this is just a way of pointing to Christ saying, look, he came and he wore the thorns on his head. And you must find, if you want him to be king, you have to choose him to be king and take refuge in his shade. But all those who do not choose the thorn bush and choose some other tree or something else to be their king, then the fire of judgment will come out of that very same thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, what the cedars of Lebanon typically mean in Scripture is the most abundant, prolific nation with shipping. I mean, this is the system of Babylon. The ships with the, always had these cedars of Lebanon on their mast, the big cargo ships. This is what he's saying here. Everything's going to be judged if you do not take shade under the thorn bush. Just saying. But the point is, is that we're looking... I, there was a side note. I had to bring it up because I just find it fascinating that, you know, you can read this once or twice or three times, read it in context, but then you find this little thing which is not in direct context, but it just is at another nugget of how God thinks, his mind, his heart. And all of these little nuggets that point to Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's why he had to wear a, a so crown of thorns. So the represent God? Or the, well, the or thorn the bush. The, the thorn bush is representing Christ here. And if you notice it, his answer is different. He's not saying, I have to give up something to be your king. He's saying, okay, if you want me to be king, then you must come under my jurisdiction. But going back to the main thrust of what I was talking about, and that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and talking about trees... You can come under the dominion of that tree and then be fed by it, protected by it, and provided from it. Does that make sense? But a thorn bush you would think is barren. It doesn't have anything. The others one said, I have grapes, I have olives, I have all these things. And the thorn bush never really says it's got anything, but you must find shade under it nonetheless. It's counterintuitive. Just like believing in Christ and faith is counterintuitive, especially for the Jew. But I just thought that was interesting. Anyway, turn forward to Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. We're going to go back to the main concept here of talking about this. Now, I'm going to read it from the NIV, and I'm going to read it from the Amplified just to see the difference. 
but I'm going to read it in both. But it's chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had, now listen to this, great authority. The earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted. Now, this is the judgment of Babylon. This is the final judgment. Now, remember, chapter 18 is just before the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ returns in his second coming in chapter 19. And then chapters 20 through, was it 21? We look into the millennium and then the world after that, which we don't really see much about. So this is at the very end after all of these things. And he announces just before Jesus comes, and he's coming in chapter 19, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now listen to this. We're talking about dominions. Just keep that in your mind. And we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, whose Babylonian system was what we, the whole basis of this, the thread that runs through the Gentile history of this world. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home or an abode or a domain for demons and a haunt for every, every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Birds live in trees. You see, going back to Babylon, and this whole system is a dominion. That's what it's saying here. And we know that the system of Babylon from Nimrod to this present time and down through all of the governments in this statue, which have different iterations of the same thing, we know that Babylon is both a religious and an economic system that merge together to form what we have here. And that's what's going to be obliterated. Now I'm going to read the same two verses in Revelation 18 in the Amplified Version and see, what, see if we can find a difference here. So we go back to this angel. Then I saw another angel descending from heaven, possessing great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his radiance and splendor. Same thing so far. And he shouted with a mighty voice, She is fallen. The other one just said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. But remember, though, it's a whore with a cup. It's a female personality. She is fallen. Mighty Babylon is fallen. She has become, now listen to this, where it said previously, a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. It says the same thing, but a little better here. It says, She has become a resort and dwelling place for demons, a dungeon haunted by every loathsome spirit, and an abode for every filthy and detestable bird. The Amplified Version really does amplify the point. So this whole system, which is a domain, it's a big tree, that houses the worst of the worst in the physical world and the spiritual world. This is the system of Babylon, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar is the head of. We're getting into this dream, of, and we're just parsing this tree that he had. Let's move down to verse 13 of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. I've got to correct these notes here. Daniel chapter 4. We've hopefully better defined this tree and the significance of it in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. In the visions, I, the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger. Now, the King James Version will say a watcher. It's very interesting, and I'm going to talk about that because the concept of the watchers and who or what they are is very key to understand in Scripture because it also, I mean, it also, it is really chiding us as believers in God and believers in the Scriptures to understand that angels are more than just angelic messengers they are but there are different classes of angels god has a structure of created beings that also are created like like for instance if we look at physical life right we can look at cats and dogs and humans and birds 
And they not only each have their own position in the whole ecosystem of this world, but they have a physiology to match their job. They have a spirit in them that makes them, like for instance, a cat has a spirit of a cat. That's why it doesn't bark like a dog. That's why it doesn't chew its cud like a cow. A cow has multiple stomachs. It's designed in its physical spirit. Use those physical features to be a cow. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of things in what they do, how they eat, and the same thing for, the, same thing for angels. And that's what I'm saying. There's, there are different classes of angels, like there's different classes of animals in the physical world. This physical world really, and the more I think about it, and I've been thinking about this for years, and you may already believe this. Some people don't really cotton to this, and everybody has their opinion, especially when we talk about metaphors in Scripture. The physical always points to a spiritual concept, and especially when we talk about the law, we talk about trees, we talk about anything. The Scriptures always make clear that the spiritual is the really real, and the physical is a simulation of that. It's a different stage so that history can be acted out here so that heaven doesn't have the same things happen there. Does that make sense? Satan was thrown out of heaven, thrown to here, to continue to sin so that sin can run its course. The good angels can come to assist us. We are made in God's image, but we are physical. We have to live in this earth and be subject to the things that heaven is not subject to because sin was cast out of heaven, but the play is still going on. We're in the last act of the play, but the play has to be played out. It's God is not going to allow sin to play out in heaven and have war like that and sin all the time. So it's played out here. That's why, if you think about it, when God dwelt with his people and we had a physical temple, first the tabernacle and the temple, then we had the physical law. But in the New Testament, because now we're in the end times, the physical law is manifest. It's not done away with. It's actually amplified into the spiritual law which we have to understand, which is difficult for us. But nonetheless, everything's a spiritual problem. That's what we're told. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against spiritual that are allowed to interlope. But we, they have the advantage in this chess game because we don't have the ability to go into heavenly places right now. That got cut off when Adam sinned. But they can still come here. So this is a stage. So when we see metaphors of trees, we see a physical temple, we see a domain or a dominion. We see how God lays out the land, how God puts his eyes on certain parts of the land and certain peoples. And it's all showing us in the physical sense how he does things in the spiritual sense. It's the same thing. Does that make sense? So looking at it that way, let's find out then what these watchers are because they're specifically mentioned here and there are specific features which we have to look at to understand better. And this is part of really the important stuff, the really important stuff that Daniel brings to us. It's not just these prophecies, it's this detail. So let's move on here. So he says here, And therefore before me was a messenger or a watcher. Now again, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking. So he knows something here. A holy one, but it's from the Hebrew, Irin, which is pronounced Irin. This is Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. He says it's the holy one, but meaning separate part. Let me tell you from the Hebrew. The Hebrew is called Irene, which means a class of angel called the cherubim, or the guardians, coming down from heaven. So we see that the watchers is something like a class of cherubim, because it, and if you look at the Hebrew, it's making it clear this is a certain type of angel. It's not a seraphim, it's a cherubim. Let's talk about the watchers or the cherubim class of angel for a second. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. As you go there, I want you to think about this question. Remember when 
Adam and Eve sinned and they were thrust out of the garden. How did God choose to prevent them of any way he could have possibly chosen, right? How did he choose to prevent them from getting back in there? With a cherubim and a flaming sword. Right. Right. I always asked myself years ago, why don't you just put up a gate? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, God can do anything. So if he does something in a certain way, there's a reason for it. And so let me ask you this, Lawrence. That flaming sword, what was a key feature of the description of that sword as it was being held by that angel, wielded by that angel? It was guarding the tree of life, flashing Right, and it was turning every which way. Now, that doesn't there for nothing. Because if you look at it, and again, from the, what I've studied over the years, every which way does not just mean he's just winging his sword all over the place, because that's not a very efficient way of using a sword, right? Typically, a sword's going to go up and down to block something. Either he's going crazy with it, or it's going through not just up and down, left and right. It's also going through different dimensions. It's something that's interdimensional. Fire also? Well, fire, right. It could also mean fire. Fire is another way of saying something that's ethereal. Okay? And he could have guarded the the way with fire, where Adam and Eve could not pass through. Right. We also then see that there was what? Just one entrance and one exit into the Garden of Eden. Could they like go around the hedge or something to find another spot to get in? So there's only one angel with a very special type of sword that he's wielding. Think about these things as you go, as we go. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, After he, God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side, on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. And I think there was some translation that says they're turning every which way. But it says here, and we find cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. So let's go there. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. And I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. Yet again, there's flashing, there's something else going on here. The center of the fire, as you said, Felicia, this fire here now, looked like glowing metal. A sword is also made out of metal. So it looked like a sword. It probably wasn't a real sword that the angel had. It had something else. But in their humanness, this is how Moses described it in Genesis. So let's go back here. Verse 5. And in the fire was looked like four living creatures. Hmm. Now, here's where it gets really detailed. But again, the metaphors of fire, flashing light, sword, we're talking about an interface between the physical realm and the spiritual realm that when we see it from this side, we have to, they, we would have to couch it in physical terms. That's really what this is about. There were four living creatures, and in appearance, this form was that of a goat, a man. Hmm. So, what does that mean? But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight up. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Further, under their wings and on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. That's quite the creature, unless this is a physical description of something that's not physical at all. That's representing itself, that's manifesting in this physical three dimensions and in time. As a side note, you know what's good about being alive today with all the technology we have, and especially the movies? Many of us have seen enough movies to see how the concepts of the things that they put in movies, which is all CGI, right? But you've seen how they would make things all of a sudden manifest 
or you see like somebody in a science fiction film get thrust through a portal and they're what they were as human beings they get through the portal and all of a sudden they have different features they have different abilities and things like that so it's easier for us to imagine the interdimensional veil being broken but for them it wasn't that easy so they could only describe in pure physical terms that they were familiar with what they saw so they kind of hobbled if you and I saw the same exact thing, whatever that was that he saw, we could describe it in better terms because we've seen these kind of things in the movies. We also know yeah, about CERN. Yeah, but we've seen some of these things. We've already seen technology like flying machines, and we know they're airplanes. We've seen technology that can do like lasers and things like that, and how they work. We may have had a different description of what exactly Ezekiel saw. And that is the point. Anyway, but let's talk about these angels that appeared in a certain way. And appeared when they manifest here, they, they look like they're a composite of different animals. Like, how could you have feet that look like a calf, but they're straight up? It look like a man, but you have hands of a man. It's like, how does this thing live? How does it sleep? How does it eat? It doesn't make any sense. Did God make a mistake? Is this like a, a botched DNA design? Or if what makes sense in the spiritual world, right, in the spiritual realm, when it manifests here, can look like something that makes no sense. Have you ever heard of the Tesseract? If you took a cube and try to make it exist in more than three dimensions or take something and represent it, you would actually have to represent it as a tesseract. You can't actually draw it where it would make sense. If this were in the spiritual realm and whatever it looked like, when it would appear here as a three-dimensional object, it would look like a cube. What I'm saying to you is, is that there is this definite veil between us and the really real. When this is all contrived, and you and I can't see or touch anything other than physical. So that's what I'm trying to make. I'm trying to give you an abstract train of thought to better understand this. Okay, so now that we've done that, let's continue. His legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead and did not turn as they moved. I, I can't even imagine this. What is this? Is, is, it could be, who knows? Okay, verse 10. Their faces look like this. Each, now listen to this description. Each of the four had the face of a man. Now remember this. A man on the right side of each had the face of a lion. We have a, a man and a wild animal. On the left side was an ox. So we have an animal that's used for work, an animal that's used by human beings to produce work or, or food, okay? And then also on each had a wing, had a face of an eagle. So we have the, the avian type of animal here too. So there's four. Such were their faces. So again, they had a face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Think of the different types of animals they are and how they, the, what their jobs are on the, on the physical planet, how they're used at what they do. Such were their faces. Now their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side and two wings covering its body. Obviously they didn't just use, they didn't need these wings to fly. Angels don't need wings to fly. So there's something, maybe these really aren't wings, there's something else, but they're touching. There's something else. One touching the wing of another creature on either side and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, ah, they would go without turning as they went. Just imagine all this. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Now, I want to just tell you something real quick. This is neither here nor there, but this is what science is saying now more than ever. 
there's a certain amount of energy. And I'm talking energy, like electricity, light, heat, energy. Because this is what CERN and others are kind of saying. This is fascinating to me because I like to study this stuff, right? Whatever is in the spiritual realm, like angels or whatever is there, when they need to manifest in this physical realm, they actually have to lower their energy levels to be able to take on mass. Because you cannot exist in the physical universe without mass. That's why they want to find the God particle. The God particle is what they say is the thing that was needed to create the universe because everything was spiritual, let's say, until the God particle is there to give mass to something to make it tangible and physical. Does that make sense? That's what they're saying. And science really believes this, and I believe it's true. Do they have such a high energy level that it looks like fire, that it looks like heat? that it looks like these things, as they're losing energy to come and manifest as a necessity to manifest here, there's still a high enough energy to impart it as heat, as light, as shining bronze, as melting metal, until they lower themselves enough in energy to look like we do. The physical DNA can be manipulated, and they know that. But there's a spiritual type of DNA. And what the angels are trying to do, like when they came, like when they said there was giants in those days in Genesis, yeah. they were taking spiritual DNA and mingling it with human DNA to create a hybrid yeah. to destroy purely human beings. They're doing it now. That, of course. But see, but it all makes sense, right? This is what I'm saying. There's a lot of science in the scripture. It's amazing how people say, if you believe the Bible, you can't believe in science. No, actually... It corroborates science, and that's, again, living in this day and age to understand so much about science. It's like, wait a minute. The Bible talks about these things in archaic language, but it's all science, and it's all true. It's amazing to me. But we have to move on because I just want to continue now. We're talking about this domain treason and now the cherubim, the watchers, which he saw in his dream. Okay, let's move to verse 13 of Ezekiel chapter 1. The appearance of the living creatures were like burning coal of fire or like torches. The fire moved back and forth among the creatures. Ah, it was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. So it doesn't look like they were really bound by physics. Inertia, things like that didn't, didn't apply to them. It's interesting. But now let's move off to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. John actually sees cherubim as well. So we just had a description of these watchers. We agree that there were descriptions. This is something like Nebuchadnezzar saw. Ezekiel saw watchers to a cherubim and described their physicality as they manifested here, the best he possibly could. So let's see what John had to say about them. John saw these cherubim just as Ezekiel saw them as they appear around the throne of God. Remember, remember when we were studying the book of Ezekiel, we talked a lot about that. About he saw a sea of glass and one who was sitting on the throne, he couldn't see his face. And the, and the cherubim were holding up the sea of glass. I was calling that, and I still call it, God's portable throne room that he takes and is an interdimensional transport for him to come here. When he met Ezekiel at the river Kibar, when they were in the captivity in Babylon, it's like, whoa, what is this? Is fire coming down with all these cherubim holding this thing up, and there's a, it was a rainbow. It's like, you can't describe something that manifests from the spiritual into the physical and whatever it looks like, it's not really what it is, but it looks like. It's absolutely amazing to me. Okay, so let's look at John chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. I'm sorry, yes, Revelation. I'm thinking of John, but it's John, yes. As John wrote the, in the book of Revelation. Good call. Thank, thank you very John. much. Yes, yes, yes. John. It's getting at a simple name, Johan.
Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. Also, before the throne, there was what, remember what we just read about Ezekiel, right? What he saw, what John saw. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Isn't that exactly what Ezekiel saw? In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. Isn't that what Ezekiel saw hundreds of years before? And they were covered with eyes in the front and back. So there's some different features here. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. And the third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like an eagle. Do we see any similarities here? Between what Ezekiel saw as watchers, so nothing changed. With whatever these are, they manifest to the same way when they saw John hundreds of years later. Interesting. Just wanted to bring that up. Verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night... Now, here's a couple of new things we didn't see in Ezekiel's version of this. Eyes. Well, we don't know really if they're eyes. So we can't start speculating. I mean, we can. Well, is it all the eyes of God and the seven spirits of God? I don't know. And nobody knows. At least not that I know of. But it's even under their wings. Whatever they are, they're eyes. They look like eyes. But here's the point. Now we're seeing an additional feature of what these cherubim do. We see their construct, but what they do is day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, they're obviously their main job is to worship God. They do other things too, like they carry God's throne, right? They are purpose-driven vehicles, if you want to call it that. Like, for instance, when you see the ox here, what do men use ox for? House pets? No. They use it to tread the grain. They have to muzzle the ox. They have to especially yoke it with another ox. But in the ox, you have strength before you had gasoline engines and diesel engines and, and electric power. That's why God gave us the ox, the strong ox and the horse. The horse is strong, but the horse can be bridled. The horse can be used for transportation and pulling things where an ox really doesn't do that, but an ox can certainly pull a plow implement and tread grain all day long and not get bored. So you see, what he, God has in angels that for special purposes, sort of like the animals of heaven, if you will, we have special purpose-built physical beings in this physical version of how heaven operates on this physical world. To me, that makes sense. Because, you see, this is the thing. When we go, back to, when we go to heaven, I can just imagine we're going to have things to do. It's going to be a fully operating ecosystem. There's going to be time. There's going to be angels going about doing. In the increase of his government, there will be no end. So there's going to be things being built. There's going to be special things for us to do and as the administrators of all of this under Christ. Can you imagine? What we see here as the world and how it functions, it's a pretty big world. And there's a lot of things going on all the time. But take the sin out of it and it functions. That's, we have to see how functions in heaven and all of these different things God created to make those functions work. That's what I get out of this. Okay. And you're not going to be tired. <laughs> That's right. And you're not going to be tired. And that time, we won't, have, we won't even need a timer. Okay, so now let's, let's listen to this. So let's look at this lion and the calf and the eagle and, or the oxen and the man. Huh? Rooster. I knew he said A rooster. Oh, yeah! <laughs> What good is a rooster? Why did God create the rooster other than to make more chickens? With you. And to be, to be nasty. I remember the roosters we had. 
They didn't like me because I was male or something. It's like they would attack me. It's like, yeah, it's like, God, why did you create a mosquito? Why does God create a mosquito? Or a tick? What do they do? <laughs> I bet there's, there's reasons for that. It probably involves sin. <laughs> I, I don't know because like, it's like, what? no, because that's like, that's like sin. There's something, something going on here. <laughs> Maybe it's DNA modification. So let's look at this for a second. We have a lion. What is a basic premise about a lion? Here, it's the king of the wild animal kingdom. And we also know that the lion is used as a metaphor for the lion of the tribe of Judah. We also see any person who has a lot of power, who is a, the king of a, of a domain, is typically equated to a lion. We also have the calf. The calf type is a domesticated animal, and it's also used for its food and everything. But maybe the watchers with the calf are the ones who watch over the domestic animal kingdom. You see, here's the thing, and I know I mentioned this before. Maybe I didn't make it clear before I read this. If you notice, Satan is always a reptile. We don't see any of the watches with reptilian features. We see the birds. We see domesticated animals. We see work animals. We see, and, and man himself. But we see Satan heavily weighted toward the reptilian age, which is all the reptiles, dinosaurs, all the big animals, the biggest animals that ever lived. And we know they did live. They had dominion over the world, even, before, even over lions, until something happened to them. And it's believed, and I have to say that seems to be true enough to me, that when Satan fell, his animal kingdom that he was a watcher over fell as well. You don't have any reptiles that really do anything anymore. They don't get that big anymore. They're pretty much cold-blooded. They're benign. They don't really do much except... The but what do they do? They eat. They eat but, you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. But what I'm saying is they're of no value, really. They don't really do anything. What I'm saying to you is when the earth had large reptiles, they impacted the earth a lot. Also, if you think about it, the majesty of a reptile and how it's built, not to diminish anything else, but if you know, remember in the book of Job, when God says, have you seen behemoth? And how his scales are tightly fit together. And he is so strong, you wouldn't dare let your daughter play with him as you let your daughter play with a bird. So he's looking at that. And he also talks about, I think, the horse and its strength in its legs. God is showing Job his creative power in the strength of the most powerful animals. And you notice he didn't mention a lion. All I'm saying is you look at all of this and you say, okay, there's a purpose that everything is built. And so if we look at the reptile kingdom, and that's why everybody who's satanic loves the dragon. China loves the dragon. You go to tattoo shops, everything's about dragons. Dragons, dragons. And you notice the dragon always has fire coming out of its mouth. Hmm. Where did that come from? Because fire is so closely associated with destruction and Satan, who's built on fire. And fire is going to, that's where he's going to live. And one other thing, you ever notice how the dragon's always chasing that ball? You ever notice that? The serpents. You ever noticed? Have you noticed it? I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Dragons chasing balls. Yes, you don't notice. Okay, you never noticed that. If you look at Chinese, especially Chinese culture, you can even go to a lot of Chinese restaurants. You'll see either a ball in its mouth, or in pictures, a dragon will be chasing a ball. But that ball, believe it or not, is from their old traditions. Which see, there's a lot of wisdom in in the sinful nature of man. They know what's going on. That's why no one can claim that they don't know. The ball for, the, for a dragon in Chinese culture is wisdom that the dragon lost and is wanting to get back. It's a native wisdom, a native 
being dominant over everything and having the wisdom as God, right? And it wants it back. Now, that's why sometimes you'll see it actually having it back by you'll see a dragon. Matter of fact, do you remember, Rachel, that the walking stick Travis had? Yeah. It had a dragon head on it. Mm-hmm. And what was in its mouth? A red ball. A red ball. I'm not making this stuff up. Is that why Chinese love so much of the dragon? Sure. And red? Yeah, absolutely. It's part of their, part of their system. It's part of everything. It's power. Yeah. But you notice it's not just in China. It's all over. And it's usually tied to the, the worst of humanity. The worst things we do in humanity, the worst things we ascribe to or that we do to each other or for each other, like tattoos or parlors or things like that. So you, have you ever heard of the serpent mounds in Ohio? They're ancient. Yes. And they're burial sites with these large bones from the giants, right. which the Smithsonian takes. But if you look at it from the sky, you have to see it from the sky... It is a serpent in a mound with a ball or an no, egg. Take a look at it. Look for the certain serpent mound in Ohio. Look it up on Google Images and you'll see it. And you'll see at the end of it, a serpent is a snake, not a dragon, but it's got a ball at the end. Just saying. All right. We have the lion which watches over. So if, if watchers do have domains, that dominions that God put them over here. By the way, we do know that angels were set over men. And they're the ones who decided... We're going to have men worship us, and that's how this whole thing came down. That's when, especially that's when God divided the world into nations, he had certain angels watch over those nations. We know that. So why is it any different for his created beings in the animal kingdom? Because what is physically here is a, is a manifest of what's spiritually in heaven in a physical realm. And the, the angels interact with it just like they do there. That's why the angels jumped for joy when God created the universe, the physical universe. It was an extension to what they had in heaven. Anyway. Dragon, snake, and all that stuff we talked about. Good. Back to Daniel chapter 4, verse 14. After all of that, now we understand that Nebuchadnezzar knew a lot of stuff, I think. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree. And this is going back to this dream. Recap, this is this big tree. It's reached to heaven. All of these birds and everything had dominion under it. It was fed by the tree, which is the Babylonian system, the kingdom. The root of this thing is Nebuchadnezzar, so that's the point. Now he's continuing to talk about this big tree. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. This is total destruction. They power it away. Yes, take everything away. The fruit that fed the dominion, everything that lived under that tree is now going to have to be scattered or die. The whole dominion is taken down. So you're right. The whole power, the provision, everything is going to be destroyed. By the way, Babylon, Babylon is fallen is the answer to this in Revelation. That tree is finally hewn down and it's scattered. I thought this was about Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, it is. Nebuchadnezzar being sent out into the wilderness. Yes, but by extension, it's about the Babylonian system too. It's all related. He's, He's like the poster boy for it, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. This is all interrelated. The more you learn about history and the more you see that the Bible, especially in Daniel, is talking about the world Gentile history, it has to say something about it, even though it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Because when you're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, you're talking about the whole Babylonian system. You're talking about also another type of Nimrod, right? Which was the same thing. And he was scattered too when he was building the Tower of Babel. But the Tower of Babel was left as a stump. Remember, God did not destroy the Tower of Babel. Matter of fact, history holds that Alexander the Great found it and wanted to rebuild it because he knew what it was. 
So that tree was hewn down, but the stump was left. Get it? Okay. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but, and here's the point Rachel's kind of making too, but think of this in the global context, not just Nebuchadnezzar's, think of Babylon. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze. Now it's iron and bronze, not iron and silver, not gold, bronze, you get it. Remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. But note specifically, it's iron and bronze, and everything in the Bible's for a reason. Look at the metals in the statue that you see on the screen. If you guys on the, on the phone there have your statue, what do you see? You have gold, silver, brass, and iron. And bronze is a mixture of what? Copper and tin. It's an amalgam. It's a weaker metal for sure. What I get out of this is where you have iron and silver and gold, those are pure metals. But when you have the, the, the metallurgy, the, the amalgam of these metals to make something better or different, right, in certain respects, like bronze is used in ship fittings and things like that because it doesn't rot, it doesn't rust. Right. And also in this time it was used for weapons. Correct, exactly, right. And it was e it's more malleable too, so it's easier to work. So um, is the copper uh, mixed because uh, in, uh, in Colombia, you know, I mean, we have all, all the... Uh, uh, minerals. I mean, all yes. this, all the things. You have a lot there, right? And uh, copper. I don't know. They have copper, so yeah. I don't. I never knew that copper could be mixed up with. Sure. Oh yeah. Mixed up with anything, but I, copper. I don't know how how come, how it comes out, how it's being born. I, I don't know. But the point is, is that it's mined like any other metal, and Colombia is happens to be probably very rich in that particular metal, right? It's very rich in copper. Yeah, so they're going to yeah. use it, and they're going to use it in more than other things because it's, they have an abundance of it. They are using it now to do yeah. the, uh, the oil, you know, uh, all these pipes on the, on the ground yeah. from Colombia. So copper is very soft, Venezuela, but it's very Colombia durable. And yeah. going into the jungles. Yeah, sure, because that's what they have. So, so that's I think what, the statue should be, it, it should be bronze. Instead of brass, it should be bronze? Right. Okay. Because I thought they were pretty close. It may be a translation thing, maybe? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's possible. But anyway, it's it's the same. It's the same kind of thing. My guess is that whatever translation is used, is it's the same thing in, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4. Yes, I agree. I absolutely agree. And if you look at the sheer point of this, is gold is not the strongest, but it's the purest and it's the most valuable. But then you get down to silver, which is less quote-unquote valuable. But it is interesting because actually silver has more uses than gold, especially in, in technology. That's why silver has more value in a lot of ways now, especially as technology grows. Yeah. They're using more silver in phones and components than gold. It's not as dear and soft like gold, but there's more value to it for industry and stuff like that. Then you look at bronze or brass, right? And you see that yeah, right. in the brass yeah. age, the bronze age, it had different purposes. So it's not as valuable. The sheer value goes down. But the purpose has changed to make it more able to what that particular government did or what type of government does. And then iron, pretty much iron is not very valuable, but it is strong. And it breaks into pieces. And you wouldn't use gold to make a hammer or an anvil. But you would use an anvil of iron and a hammer of iron maybe to shape gold and to shape bronze. Or you could use iron to make really strong weapons that would defeat bronze weapons. So that's the point. But iron is brittle. And then if you look at the component of clay, which is another story, we'll get to that. But 
What are we called, us as human beings and animals? We're called clay. clay. <laughs> but also, if you look in the scripture in certain places, you look at the, the angelic realm, and sometimes their being is equated with iron. Stand. That's right, but it's a, it's a higher level of DNA. It's stronger, but if you look, and it says at the end of Daniel, and this is maybe a spoiler alert, I don't know, but... It says when it talks about the stand the statue, and it says at the end when the just before the feet of iron, they only stay together for a short time, and it says and they will try to mingle the iron clay, but they will not be able to keep it together. So in the end times, we know because we talked about it that this DNA mixing, which is nothing new from back in Genesis, mixing iron DNA, if you will, with clay, human DNA, it's just information. But can you get something that can be interdimensional if it has? Like, I believe that Adam and Eve had certain interdimensional ability. That's why, if you notice, it doesn't show any signs of Eve being shocked when Satan appeared. Because she'd seen these things before. If Satan or an angel came here right now, like, you see everybody else in the Bible. Oh, I'm falling. I can't get up. And they have to say, comfort yourselves. I'm not here to hurt you. Or sometimes I am here to hurt you. But you notice how they're not shocked before sin. Or, or just when sin happens. when they're... They But now we're human. They were angels, so I think they were used to them. That's my point. But that was my point. But you and I aren't used to them. No. Right? Okay, that was my point. Anyway, we, we should stop right now. Um, we'll pick this up at the bands of bronze and iron. All right.